Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, we have a lengthy catch-up as we are clearly excited to get back on the horn together. After that, and inspired by their recent and tragic shooting death on the Alec Baldwin movie set Rust, I discuss a fascinating new piece of technology that may make blank firing guns obsolete in film. Then Brett dives head down into a spiritual classic about a free-flying bird named Jonathan Livingston. Seagull, that is. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Yes. Josh. How are you? Uh, You know, life is like a roller coaster. Sometimes it's the really fun uh, Six Flags experience, and sometimes it's the scary, rickety, wooden, busted up, horrible roller coaster where they don't talking let you about off. like a uh, <laughs> like at a traveling carnival roller coaster. Basically. Exactly, exactly. The carnies, you know, they they don't really know what they're doing. The maintenance isn't very good. Left a few bolts on the trailer. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, what's new, man? You've been, uh, it's, it's been, I think it's been about three weeks or so since we've recorded together. And I know a lot of things have been happening. It's, uh, I mean, you've got, you're finished with your training, right? Correct. Um, the last week and a half has been a very fun and eventful uh, first week and a half as a captain. Um, I've had two weather diversions in... A, th- a three day period of time. It's, it's been very good. I mean, I, I mean, it's been very challenging, but it's actually gone, I think fairly well. And I've taken to the left seat, um, a little quicker than I expected. I mean, I, I've been a captain before, but it's been a long time and I, I'm just one of those people, you know, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses. And I was a good first officer. Like I was a natural first officer. Cause you have to be kind of a chameleon and sort of adapt to the captain's style and just be kind of good support. Um, leadership is not something that's comes naturally to me like it does for a lot of pilots or just type A personalities. So leadership and just making command decisions like that was something that I had to, I think work on when I was uh, a new captain the first time. And it, it took months. I mean, it's not, you know, it's a totally different set of skills that you have to bring into the cockpit. So this time around, I kind of, you know, it's been so long since I've been in the left seat. I expected it to take a while, but it just, it felt like day one. It was totally natural. And I'm, I'm not saying I don't have a lot to learn because I have a lot to learn. There's always something to learn when it comes to aviation and, uh, you know, a complex job like this, but um, I think I feel, you could be casually humble about uh, your abilities and your need to continue learning. But I mean, you also got to be really proud of yourself. I mean, this is like, this is what you've been clawing your way back for the last two, two and a half years. Yeah. It's, I uh, want to be the first to congratulate you. Probably not the first, <laughs> but on the air. Because dude, I'm so proud of you, man. Thanks, buddy. You're, uh, you're so nice. <laughs> oh yes you're not well, just sure. nice to look at you're also nice to listen to good thing we got a good zoom connection <laughs> so you can see this beautiful humble mug yeah um 
Yeah, that's that's so awesome, man. Like, um, do you think you're going to fall back into it pretty quickly? Like, taking what you learned before, I'm assuming that you will be stair-stepping up in your leadership abilities instead of, you know, having to start from ground floor. You know, you're going to be on an accelerated pace to become the leader that you were before, I would imagine. Oh, I, I mean, I, I, it's like I never left. That's, uh, yeah, man. Hopefully... And I'm glad that you got all this uh, finished and hopefully we can have you back for the show now because we have definitely missed your presence. But I do want to thank Nick Flip Six Three Hole for coming in because, man, he really stepped up and uh, he told me, he was like, well, I didn't realize how much work went into making the show. And there is a lot that goes into it. So I really appreciate his effort and the downloads on his episodes have been quite respectable. So he's clearly Nick, more popular awesome than me content to the show. <laughs> <laughs> maybe more popular than me too yeah it, honestly those some of those episodes were the best episodes that i've listened to i need to go watch tremors I've, it's been so long since i've seen that movie i gotta rewatch that thing graboids and ass blasters oh man so good <laughs> so anything else yeah um well i said it life's been a roller coaster um so not that long ago, uh, Bree and I found out that some really incredible nomadic friends of ours, um, they were taken in a plane crash unexpectedly. It was the oh, two man. of them and their two dogs. I don't know if you remember the episode where I talked on the off top about Beaver Island. Yeah, James Strang, right? King Strang? That's right. That's right. You have a, a great memory for Mormon... <laughs> branch off cults uh, it it's was, impressive uh, hammered in as a child <laughs> um well that that was the that was the trip where Bree and i um we were kind of touring on the east coast with our airstream and and we went out to visit kate and adam and we we had met up with them before i mean they, they started basically as instagram friends um and actually before we started the episode i was watching the airstreamer nomad instagram uh, communities, um, zoom service. So, so somebody in the airstream community put together this service and recorded it. I was, this is actually my second weather diversion. I was on a tarmac delay in Austin. I was supposed to be at the hotel attending the service, but because we had to, um, divert due to weather and sit on the ground, get fuel, you know, I was like three hours late getting to my hotel. And so I missed the service, but Bree spoke and, you know, I just haven't been able to watch it yet. I just had a lot of flying and, um, I, when I'm at work, I do my best to compartmentalize things so that I can perform. Um, but I'm about to go into some days off and it was time for me to watch it. And it's just been, it's just been a really emotional sort of, uh, you know, that these were some really amazing people that touched a lot of a lot of people, inspired a lot of people. I mean, they were starting. They they ran a successful business. They had a successful relationship. They had two amazing dogs. They were total dream livers, life pilots. They uh, their business. They were like these, and their business. They didn't really talk a lot about. They kind of kept their their Instagram life was for like nomads and airstreamers and. But they were, they did like risk management con consulting for like governments, like, like 
heavy stuff, man. And Adam was an attorney, actually, and Kate was trained as a biochemist. But they put this like amazing business together and they could work wherever they you know, wanted to. But then they moved to this tiny island in Lake Michigan, Beaver Island, and they were starting a vineyard. I mean, that it's just unbelievable people. And I mean, it's just it's just been weighing a little heavily on me. I, I wasn't sure I was going to talk about it on the show, but I want to be like genuine about things because I think that you and I have strived to do that in the past. And uh, I'd be lying if, uh, you know, I said everything was great and I wasn't thinking about anything sad. (laughs) So. Yeah, I mean, we've got into some pretty heavy stuff on this show. Um, But yeah, that's, man, that's so rough. That's definitely something that, and unfortunately, I'm also familiar with losing friends as a young person because of skydiving. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but there have definitely been some fatalities of some of my really close friends. Um, most recently was uh, my friend Ryan Risberg, who I've basically known since the day I started skydiving, you know, for like over 20 years. And uh, it was, it was the same kind of thing where like, it, he just seemed like a person that was kind of just like so good and so pure and genuine and kind of like beyond reproach his like ability in skydiving just seemed, you know, like almost unrivaled how much of a natural athlete he was, but he was, uh, he died in a speed flying accident. I think he was in Romania or something like getting into a new aspect of parachute sports. And, you know, that one just like, it just hit me so hard when that happened because I think it's easy to, you know, have like a, it's kind of like a platitude of saying like, oh yeah, live every day as if it's your last. And like, it's a great, uh, it's a great thought, but I don't think people really do that, you know, because you get kind of bogged down in the mundanity of just normal life. And you start, you just start thinking like, well, I'll just get all this, you know, grunt work done. And then tomorrow I'll have an awesome day. But that kind of stuff like really puts it into perspective for me. And, uh, I've had this, this weird sensation, the last few times this has happened where I've lost somebody that I've known for a while. And when I learned that it was like, it's kind of like this involuntary response, like almost every one of my senses were heightened slightly for the rest of the day. Like everything just seemed brighter and I could, you know, sound seem more uh, like more fidelity when what I was hearing, it was a really strange sensation. And I, I really think it's from, you know, it's, it's almost like my mind's response to realizing that someone great is gone. And it's almost like a little bit of a gift where my mind has made it, it just made everything seem a little bit nicer and realize like even in the, the boring moments of life, there's still like so much awesome majesty and wonder everywhere you look. And that's just a, you know, it's a, it's a really strange sensation that I definitely don't want to happen, but it's been a little bit of a gift for me the last few times. Um, I've gotten terrible news like that. That's, that's, that's an interesting perspective. I've definitely, um, I mean, I feel grateful to have known them and I definitely feel like it's a great reminder or there's a great lesson because I mean, they, they really, you know, I am somebody that gets wrapped up in 
you know, distractions and um, just the stresses of life and uh, trying to like further my career, whatever. Kate and Adam really seemed to like balance things better. So they always had time for like adventures and friends and they, they didn't really seem like they wasted any time. I mean, they, you know, and I just, but, but I think all of those positive things that I could take from this and maybe hopefully I can shift more positive as I sort of move into a different stage of this grieving process. But right now that's all kind of overshadowed by just like, just like suddenly feeling like really angry that I was like selfishly robbed of a great friendship. Um, and I feel just like really like upset about like how their family must feel. Like I just, I will just get kind of come in, comes in waves, these like waves of emotion, like, God, come on. Like, why did that have to happen to them? It's not fair. And I guess it's all pretty normal stuff. I did want to share a story that I thought was kind of funny that I thought you might appreciate, but just in the spirit of what I was watching with their service, they, so on, on this island, on Beaver Island, they kind of transplanted their airstream, like nomadic life, like into a stationary homesteader's life. And they bought this land. They were growing these grapes. They had this like cabin that was on the property that they were in the process of fixing up. Like we, Bree and I, um, we visited them on Beaver Island not long after they had, I think they'd been living there like a month or two. Bree would remember more accurately than I would, but um, it was a pretty new project by the time, like, like they hadn't been there long before we got there. And with this house, they were working to remodel it. And it, it was kind of this like spooky looking, like two story, um, but it was also like under construction as being remodeled. But they were running this really professional business, right? So in one of the upstairs rooms, they had like painted the back wall of this room. They had this really nice piece of art hanging there. They had this long wooden table, the big office chair. So it was like a conference room set. So like on one side was like (laughs) spooky uh, remodeling uh, construction zone. And then Kate would set her laptop and it would sit in this, it would like face (laughs) this like conference. Zoom meetings. (laughs) For for meetings, exactly. I mean, she she was like the boss, basically. In the program that will do that for you. Oh, people you know this. Set. People know backgrounds <laughs> yeah, are. Totally. They can tell it's you're fake, not in though. Hawaii. <laughs> oh, you're in space. Wow. <laughs> nice of you to join Jeff us on Bezos this call. Bezos' <laughs> friend over here. So so Adam was the legal team, right? So he would also be on this conference call, but he'd be down in the airstream with a different background. So. So even though they had this incredible marriage, they'd both adventured together. They'd just traveled to all these amazing places. They, they, I don't think they really disclosed to clients that the business was being run um, by this like power couple. Her, her, she had kept her her same last name. So they sort of bypassed, I think, mentioning like, oh yeah, like we're we're together. Um, so so they'd be on these Zoom meetings. And they'd be in separate locations, but really in the same place. She'd have this like conference room set. I mean, it was just ingenious, you know, it was just like really, um, I don't know. I just thought it was like, there's something like clever about it or just like cute about it, I guess. Strategically framing uh, video and photos is one of the first steps to deceiving everyone around you. (laughs) 
They That's were, an old Calvin and Hobbes lesson. They were definitely not deceptive types. They were just um, truly embodying the professionalism um, that they exuded, and just like the just the extreme competency in every aspect of their life. But man, that's all. That's I just wanted to get that off my chest. I appreciate uh, I appreciate your perspective and your thoughts. I know I've shared a little bit about this before recording the show, and um, it's nice to know that I have friends that I can lean on and and uh, stuff. Stuff, man. It's not easy. Indeed. Well, I do have a story that might lift your spirits a little bit. Please do. It's your uh, turn yeah. to cheer everybody up. <laughs> Big responsibility. This ketchup might go a little long. Brett and I haven't talked to each other in a few weeks. Uh, so uh, I just got back from a five-day trip to uh, Sun Valley, Idaho, with our best friend and original crew bomb member, Derek. And, oh, I know uh, that guy. You do know him. He's uh, quite an adventurer. So we had this awesome adventure day. We went to uh, Black Magic Canyon, which is this old volcanic, uh, volcanic rock dried-up riverbeds. It's basically like... 20, 25 foot deep, black, smooth rock canyon. It looks like something out of Star Wars. So we started there and I was like, wow, this is great. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought that'd be our adventure for the day. And then on the way back, we stopped at this lava tube, which was this gigantic underground cave. Uh, We had to go through this like two foot squeeze. We'd crush ourselves down and crawl on our stomachs. And then as we got through that, it opened up into this, you know, it was probably... 25, 30 feet tall, big, round, it looked like a subway tunnel where the lava had just burrowed through the earth, or like a like a sandworm tube is kind of what it looked like. <laughs> oh, nice. So we went back about you know a quarter mile into that, and apparently this thing runs 75 miles underneath the high desert there. So that was also an experience. Like I've never had any, an experience like that. But then the, uh, the last day, or the, uh, the end of that day, we ran this covert op mission. Uh, I think the uh, the statute of limitation for being prosecuted by the Sun Valley Ski Resort has already passed. It's been about a week. But uh, <laughs> they were not open yet. They were blowing snow, getting ready to open on Thanksgiving. We were there like three days before Thanksgiving. And so we ran this covert op where we snuck in. We went through the little village area. We were going to uh, skin up, which is like, you know, skiing up the mountain. Uh, we wanted to go, you know, like a two-thirds of the way up the run and then ride down to get like first tracks and all this blown snow and there's nobody out there so the first thing we see when we pull up is a snowmobile going up the mountain and so we're like oh man there's people here like we're not supposed to be riding you know there's signs posted saying that like all downhill operation is suspended so we just sit there and watch for a little bit he's up on the mountain for like 10 minutes and Derek's you know he says he's probably not coming down he's probably working so we hustle, we get all geared up, we start heading up, and we're about a third of the way up the the, uh, the climb we wanted to make, and we see a snowcat coming down on this trail that we were planning on taking. And so we ditched all our gear, and we jumped and hid in the bushes, and we laid there for a while because we, we were going to like try to wait him out, but he just he stopped pretty much up the mountain right where we were going. So we changed our plan, and uh, we just did this night hike, this 700-foot in a 700 foot altitude gain at this 45 degree incline up to this overwatch and uh, overlook area, just hanging out up there looking at the, you know, the, the city of sun Valley. And then 
eventually we decided, okay, we're, we're done. Let's go down. Let's ride. And we thought we'd pretty much gotten away with it at that point. But on the way down, you know, the last thousand feet of this, uh, this run, we're coming around this corner and we see the snow cat and he's blocking our path. He's right there at the base of the mountain. And so we waited until he was driving forward. And as they're going forward, they cast this big wide beam, basically, you know, spotlight that would blind him to anything outside of that beam. So when we saw him doing that, we just beelined it. And right as we pass behind him, he hits it, goes into reverse and his reverse floodlights come on and just completely illuminate us. And we're like, oh, oh hey, here we are, everyone. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. We got almost all the way to the bottom without getting caught, but we were able to pull it off. We're leaving. We're walking across the bridge, kind of like celebrating our victory, this covert op that we put together. And uh, <laughs> this other employee just at the same time starts wandering in from the other direction, just passes us on the bridge. And he's like, hey, what's up, guys? So we're like this whole thing, we realized it would not have mattered. No one would have given a shit if we were up there. But it was fun <laughs> to play it like they did. <laughs> That's hilarious. That sounds awesome, man. Wow, right on. Yeah, it was really cool, man. Um, but yeah, what do you say we get into some off-top? Oh, I like it. I can't wait to hear what you got. All right, well, I'm sure everyone has heard about what happened on the set of the Alec Baldwin movie, Rust. Oh, um, I, that's a feel-good story. Totally is. Yeah, that's that's kind of our uh, our mood tonight. <laughs> and I know, I know this is not news. This happened weeks ago. But you know what? We aren't a news show, so... Fuck the news cycle. If we want to talk about something weeks after it's relevant, we're going to do it because it's still interesting even if everyone, quote-unquote, important has already lost interest in this story. But if you if you have not heard the details of this story, this happened on October 21st. Uh, cinematographer Helena Hutchins and the director Joel Souza were shot on the set of the film Rust by Alec Baldwin, which is insane. And uh, Helena Hutchins was killed, and the director, Joel Souza, was seriously wounded. And for what I was able to dig up, this is roughly what went down. Uh, so there was a gunfight scene being filmed where Baldwin's character would aim his gun at the camera and fire. And they brought three guns out on a cart. Among them were a plastic gun that could sh- not shoot live ammunition, a modified weapon that could not fire any ammunition of any type, and a solid frame forty-five Colt revolver, uh, basically a real gun. And this last one was the one that Alec Baldwin fired. So the armorer on set inspected the 45 and then he handed it to, to uh, the assistant director who declared it to the crew to be a cold gun, I- indicating that there are no cartridges loaded into it, even though for some reason, four rounds were reportedly loaded into the gun. And not, not blanks. just blank, not just blanks, right? Real bullets or were they? Blanks? I mean, apparently, yeah, there was three blanks and they, Everything I read said an alleged an alleged fourth suspected live round. So <clears throat> Alec Baldwin was rehearsing the scene and he aimed the gun directly at the camera where Hutchins and Sousa were sitting with no like safety or hearing protection of any kind. He, and he said, so I guess I'm just going to take this out, pull it and go bang. And when the hammer fell, the chamber was holding the suspected live round. And uh, Hutchins was immediately flown to a local hospital where she was declared dead tragically and Sousa was treated by uh, EMS on the scene then transferred to a local hospital and released the next morning and there have been countless hours of debate about this type of thing what were you going to say oh I, no I, I just um, I wasn't going to say anything I, it's just shocking oh, yeah it really is Yeah. Because 
so like there's been countless hours of debate by various filmmaker guilds about firearm safety. You know, this, the first time I ever heard of something like this happening was Brandon Lee, you know, killed yeah. instead of the crow, which is like yep. s- extremely famous yeah. uh, incident. And a lot of production companies have declared that no blank or live firing weapons of any kind are allowed on their sets. And that's why in movies you see so much gunfire in film and especially in TV that's done with CGI using like dummy guns or airsoft guns that cycle like real weapons, but don't fall fire any projectiles. And if you're a discerning viewer like me, you can always tell the difference. Like I'm, I am a hundred percent for films being made safer because I want talented people to continue making this content that I love and I want it to be done safely. But it's clear that, you know, the halcyon days of the eighties where gunfire was essentially real on screen are long gone. And if you watch closely in action movies now, you almost never see live fire happening, you know, like blanks being fired. Have you noticed that? You know, it, it's it's hard to say. I just, I just, it's it's very difficult for me to understand how, you know, a, a movie that's getting made doesn't have, I mean, clearly they did have an armorer. Um, so they had somebody that was responsible for you know preventing this exact same thing happening but i mean you think with having big stars involved and lots of insurance lots of money um that you would have you know systems in place for this to not happen i mean clearly you know uh, errors happen when humans are involved but i mean this is just wild well there's apparently a better way and this is what I really want to talk about because this is an awesome, interesting piece of technology. So there's this system. So this is this system is the video I've seen seems 100% better than ever using a blank in a gun. And it has been wholly ignored by Hollywood. So uh, this company, Copenhagen Industries, uh, created this system called Violet which is great name, my daughter's name. <laughs> but it was uh, it was pioneered by Soren Haraldstead and Daniel Karpanchoff. And it's apparently the safest way to simulate gunfire without CGI. So this is a system that uses propane and oxygen ignited with a sparker and uh, tied to the trigger of basically a hollowed out replica gun. And uh, this mechanism creates a muzzle flash on demand that looks almost identical to a real firing weapon. So they said that when they were developing the Violet system, it took months of testing to get the muzzle flash just right. My notes say muzzle flush, but that is not (laughs) what they were trying to get right, the muzzle flash. So they wanted to get it the right size, the color, the speed, everything to read on camera as gunfire. And uh, so this information I got from uh, a Variety magazine article and has a demo reel. And I got to say, man, like the system looks amazing. It's, It's not... A real weapon. It's uh, you, you don't have to have permits for it. it. Doesn't require reloading. It never jams. It's basically a, a special effect, a special effect firearm that simulates gunfire and seems to be tailor made for filming movies because that's what they built it for. Hmm. And it it hasn't really caught on or been used in any films that I could find. So in 2005, uh, Copenhagen. Copenhagen Industries started a fundraising campaign. They were showing off this tech to various production companies like Disney and Millennium Films and uh, the, the Will Smith's family, like 
basically all these like high rollers, they were trying to raise $5 million to begin full scale production of the system. And for some reason they repeatedly heard the confounding response of this looks amazing, but we don't want to fund it. So everybody loved the idea, but nobody wanted to pay for it probably because there's already, you know, established rules and unions about firearms and things already in place in Hollywood. So it seems like it's probably a bunch of bureaucratic nonsense that kept this violet system from being from catching on like to the point where they basically shuttered their company in December, 2020. And uh, then flash forward to October 21st this year. And uh, people started forwarding news stories to uh, Daniel Karparchoff, one of the founders about this tragedy. And, he was thinking, you know, at first he said like, this used to be related to me, but it's not anymore. I've totally moved on from this project. It looks like the momentum from this Alec Baldwin shooting is kind of like proving to be too much to ignore. And uh, they said that they jump-started the company back up and they've already received a million dollars from a private European family to resume work on Violet. And they hope to close the remaining $4 million in the coming weeks. And from there, he anticipates like a six to nine month production timeline to get this violet safe alternative firearms, hopefully into the hands of filmmakers. Well, it's nice to know that when uh, some horrible uh, accident happens that results in somebody's death, uh, at least in the world of entertainment and fake firearms, things actually change. Maybe, hopefully. maybe real life America could take a page out of that book. Because it seems oh, like a lot of violence, nothing really changes. But uh, I mean, you know, conflict is like integral storytelling and weapons are a very important part of the storytelling process. So like I, as a content contentologist, am all about them finding a safer way to do this. And I hope that the policies do change and something like this catches on. You know, I'm totally rooting for this violent system, not just because it has the same name as my daughter, greatest name ever but because it really does seem like the best option that has ever existed for filming gunfire. So I'll share this, uh, this article and there's some awesome demo reel footage in there. If you're into like special effects and things, it's really interesting. Check it out. I mean, it looks just like a gun firing on screen. I definitely want to check that out. You know, I remember the, with Bruce Lee's son for crow, I know it was, uh, it was a blank, but like something got lodged in there. So like it was like a piece of wax or so it was like a wax bullet or something to that effect. But you, yeah, some projectile lodged uh-huh. in the barrel, right? But you saying that with the Alec Baldwin, because I hadn't really followed the story that closely. I've been too busy really to watch um, horrible things on the news. But the uh, that's the first I've heard that there was possibly actually a live round. So that you're you're saying there was three blanks and a and a real live like normal bullet in there. I mean, from what I gathered, it was not a, a dummy or replica gun at all. I mean, usually like a blank firing gun will have, you know, like a smaller chamber or something where it can't accept uh, a live bullet, you know, like the, the uh, just like the tolerances are slightly different. Or, I mean, I remember seeing in like 80s action movies, you could clearly see there was like a plug in barrels because, you know, these were yeah. like weapons that could not fire a real bullet. So this would have had to have been a real gun, which I did read a lot of things again, alleged about, uh, you know, them 
taking cost cutting measures and rushing production. And I did hear and that. I, yeah. I can't really speak on that, but if you were taking measures like that and you're trying to save time and budget, I mean, maybe you would say like, Oh, we already have guns. We don't need to buy these special effects guns. And you know, this is, it sounds like exactly why the violet system never caught on, but you know, maybe hopefully this will be a wake up call because I want, I want awesome effects and I want movies and I want the people that make great movies to keep making them. So I hope that, I hope that something really does change to prevent some, you know, a tragedy like this from ever happening again. Seriously. Well, and another solution, just everything is animated. No more actors, no more live action entertainment. Just deep fake action. Just everything CG. Everything. everything just, you know, Pixar style animation or maybe anime. But nothing I know real. you probably don't watch as many kids cartoons as I do. <laughs> but uh, almost nothing is hand animated anymore. It seems like CGI has become so cheap and easy to make that you know, most of them are you know just total trash. But... These are shows that would have been hand animated when I was a kid, like Looney Tunes, things like that. And it really, hand animation really stands the test of time much longer than CGI. So I hope you're not right. I hope that's not the way all of our movies go. (laughs) Well, one can hope, Josh, one can hope. So I got to ask, what do you have on your content circuit? Oh, man. Well, I've been (laughs) watching and reading a lot of things. Um, so I had a few things. Let me pull up my list. I won't go too deep into these, but, uh, I did want to at least mention some of them. So there, I, I saw Dune. All right. Which was awesome. Yes, I was so going to say flip six, three holes suggestion. I like that. I like how we, we, when he was here, we called him Nick. And now that he's gone right back to flip six, three hole for some reason. <laughs> so weird calling him Nick. Uh, Who's yeah, Nick? so Dune. You mean, oh, you great. flipped six, three hole. Yeah. That was a great suggestion uh, to see that in theaters. I just watched the Kevin Hart series. It's like a mini series called True Story on Netflix. It's like a dramatic role where he plays uh, like a world famous comedian that basically has like the worst series of events ever. And it's kind of like a, a commentary on what it's like to be famous and also the kind of things that you can pull off and get away with and sweep under the rug when you have a lot of money and also the kind of things that you can't sweep under the rug. It's really interesting. It's kind of like this. It's like a slow build dramatic tension type of thing. You know, like we've talked about the frog in boiling water where you're like in so deep before you realize it. It's kind of one of those stories. Interesting. And then I found an amazing podcast, which I've been basically mainlining. It's called lyrics to go. It's a, a show where, uh, Seth and Mark, the two hosts, they will take some song with uh, maybe like like a pop song that everyone thinks they know the lyrics to or know what it's about or like some horrible Bush song with just like super creepy lyrics and they'll break it down line by line and go like deep evaluations into all the stuff that the, you know, the what the artist was getting at or speculation of what they might have meant. It's really fascinating. Cause I'm not, I'm not a huge music guy, but when I do listen to music, I'm usually listening for the lyrics. That's like one of my, my biggest inspirations for music. So it's really cool to such a simple show concept and breaking down lyrics 
so fascinating. So you probably loved that episode um, uh, on Mo- Monster Mash. I listened to that one. Lyrics to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. It's so that was uh, <laughs> so the the uh, guest they brought in, John Fahey. He's from another podcast. That yeah, I profiles and uh, eccentricity, right? Exactly, yeah. and that's how I that's how I heard about the show. It was just uh, he mentioned that he was on it, which. I feel like almost every great podcast I found that's outside of my main purview came from a recommendation on another podcast. Yeah, I I also hate the Monster Mash song. So <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> I have that in common with them. So what about you? Um, let's see. So uh, besides watching Dune in theaters, um, I think I mentioned this last time. Maybe not. James Bond, No Time to Die. I did see that. Uh, when I had just a few moments with Brie between uh, work schedules, because my uh, November was pretty busy, but um, I we watched The Eternals. I think it's just called Eternals. How was that? I haven't like, I, heard anything about that. Is it I absolutely loved it. I honestly, it's it's extremely ambitious, and oh my god, it's awesome! <laughs> it's a raging endorsement. Three thumbs up. <laughs> Three thumbs up. Absolutely. The, uh, oh man, I can't wait for you to watch it just for the, just for some of the visuals, like at the end of, uh, well, I don't, I, I, I can't spoil anything. I'm not going to do it, but please man. don't. But on that note, I also saw Shang-Chi. Oh, which nice. Was great. Great. That's, I mean, that was, yeah, that was an awesome movie. I didn't realize they were going to like knock it out of the park with that one. I think I, I just didn't know much about the character and, um, I just, I think my expectations were just like, I don't know, just somewhere in the middle and it just blew way past that. And is like, I think it's like one of the, one of the better, if not like one of the best Marvel movies. It was really great. See, I was, uh, up until about the three quarters mark, I was like, yeah, this is a pretty cool movie. And then the final scene, I was like, oh man, this is exactly what the MCU needs. Totally. Absolutely. Uh, man, Spider-Man. No way home. That is the internet is a buzz. I think it comes out <laughs> in uh, de- on December fifteenth or yeah. I, I mean, people are losing their shit, man. It's wild out there. It's like it feels like the um, the excitement from like Infinity War and Endgame for the Spider Man movie. People just love Spider Man. It's the perfect way to go with the MCU because. The the uh, the stage was already set for this multiverse idea, it, specifically with Spider Man with Into the Spider Verse, which is mm-hmm. like one of the coolest Spider Man properties ever. One of the best, yeah. And to have it seems like Far From Home or No Way Home is essentially going to be live action Spider Verse, totally bringing in all the actors and characters from the other films. And it's also like it's the perfect way to open the gates for like saying, okay, now Deadpool can be in the MCU and right. bring in true. Wolverine, all these characters from the other stories. Cause definitely canonically, they all exist, uh, you know, in a alternate timeline from the MCU. Absolutely. Well, well, speaking of Marvel, the other thing that's been on my content circuit is Hawkeye. It's, uh, the Disney, uh, plus series. And I just like, I mean, I know I'm so easy to please with, this franchise, but I just love it. I just think it's fantastic. I think it's really You're so difficult to impress. <laughs> I am the opposite of that. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> uh, so do they give it the Loki treatment where it takes like 
somewhat bogus character and makes it like one of the most interesting characters in okay, the, hold on the now. timeline. Hold on. Hawkeye's not a bogus character. Uh, uh, yeah, he- I think if you looked up uh, <laughs> if you look up bogus character in the MCU Webster's dictionary, their timeline it probably has a picture of Okay, he was Hawkeye was a bogus character until the movie, which I can't remember if it was uh, Captain America Civil War or maybe it was Infinity War, but they introduce um, his whole family and, you know, they kind of escape to his farmhouse. Um, Nothing makes a superhero better than a bunch of baggage. (laughs) He has like the opposite of baggage. He has like a normal, healthy relationship. And but yeah, so I I don't know the the way that they deal with um, his fame kind of post end game uh, times like they it starts off like he's he attends a musical rendition of like what happened at the first battle of new york where there's like it's like a broadway play now oh and so he's he's watching this but then people are approaching him and like thanking him but i think either he feels really guilty for you know losing um like black widow and you know, all maybe being Ronin because he was Ronin during that period of time, and just like, that's the best rendition of him. Well, I Ro- Ronin, I think it pl- is going to, going to play uh, into this a little bit for sure. So, I mean, it's they're definitely take they're definitely showing a lot of like growth and evolution with this character, and I mean, it is just really a a really fa- and it's also like it's based in New York. It's kind of like a holiday theme. There's like Christmas music and like it's Christmas themed. Like, oh, is Hawkeye going to get home for Christmas? It's a lot of fun, but very different than WandaVision, which is also very different than Loki. I mean, they just all have different flavors. I love them. The, the TV series, some of the best stuff that's come out of Marvel. Oh, it I'm really definitely going to be watching Hawkeye. Oh, it's. It's so good. Well, third episode comes out uh, in a couple of days, and Wednesday. So I guess yesterday, if you're listening to this episode on Thursday. Wow, that <laughs> is some alternate timeline math you just did. But my last, Ooh. my last content circuit that I want to mention, I have been uh, just crazy, like streaming every night to fall asleep. BoJack Horseman. <laughs> is it good i've never That's, seen it's it. it's great i mean it's heard it's, rave reviews you know i i think just when life gets like really challenging and i have a lot on my plate i need something like colorful and just kind of escapist is like the content that i gravitate towards um and bojack is that but it turns out it's actually really dark too uh, very funny but very dark. So just be warned if you get into it, you, you'll get hooked. It's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of clever, unique gags that I've never really seen before. Um, but uh, they, they tackle some pretty dark stuff for sure. Cool. Sounds like we both made a good use of our time off from the show. Digging Absolutely. into some new stuff. Absolutely. That's pretty great. And uh, on that note, Let's take a quick break, and then when we get back, Brett is going to regale us with some content. content? Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, I'm so excited to hear what you got today, buddy. Well, let me see. I'm going to try to put you in the mood here. Can you hear this? Oh, man. So peaceful. I feel like I'm in Maine, sitting on the beach. It's kind of like a little cold and windy. 
<laughs> I, I don't know if this is coming through very good, but um, Josh, I, I wanted to humbly bring you and our wonderful listenerologists content that really captured my heart a long time ago. Um, this is actually considered a timeless spiritual classic, and considering everything that we talked about earlier, I think it's really appropriate for this episode. So the the emotional impact that this book holds in just 144 short pages, I mean, it's really quite amazing. In addition to exploring themes of not fitting in, not being understood, being cast out by your community, uh, finding meaning and purpose, achieving your potential, death and even transcendence, it also dives into more specific topics that I think you and most of our listeners will find particularly appealing, like pushing yourself athletically, finding the limits of your performance, pursuing something so passionately that other things sort of fall by the wayside. But let's get even more specific. How about some references to aerodynamic performance, terminal velocity, aerobatic flight, flying head down? (laughs) The best. So this, this is a book for anyone, but it's especially poignant for pilots, skydivers, and people that do both, for sure. And also, this is a book about a seagull, a special oh. seagull named Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Interesting. Are you, are you familiar with this book? You know what? I've only heard people talk about it, but I've never read it. So well, <laughs> I'm, this will be interesting for you to sell me on potentially reading this in the future oh you're gonna read it after i tell you about it buddy can't wait to join the don't spoil it (laughs) so jonathan livingston seagull it's it's written by uh richard bach who is famous for another great book illusions the adventurers of a reluctant messiah um i want to talk about illusions a little bit so it's about two barnstorming pilots in a sort of teacher-student relationship who discuss the uh the nature of our underlying reality and how it's kind of an illusion. But um, when was that published? uh, I think an older book. So illusions he wrote after Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I think it was in the 1970s. I want to say like 1975 or six. I'm not sure about illusions. Mm, Interesting. I'm pretty sure. It sounds like the, like the uh, holographic reality theory sort of. Oh, totally. I mean, more metaphysical, spiritual, but absolutely, um, I think that's like kind of part of his, you know, the, this isn't the real life. This is the Matrix um, temporary situation. So Illusions, it, I, I, why I want to talk about it, I think it's another great book, especially for pilots. Um, and when I was researching this episode for Jonathan Livingston Seagull, I discovered a few things about it that I was unaware of that I thought you would be interested in. Um, I also read Illusions as a kid. I haven't picked it up since um, since the first time that I read it. So I'm really looking forward to, to revisiting that as well. But one of the characters in that book, uh, Donald William Shimoto, so he's a messiah who quits his job after deciding that people value the barnstorming showmanship type performance of miracles and rather just being entertained as opposed to understanding the message behind him. The American so, way. The American way, exactly. Uh, one of these miracles that catches his fellow barnstorming friend's attention 
is calming a little girl's fear of flying and getting ready to fly by explaining to her that her fear comes from a traumatic experience in a past life. Um, so th this reminded me so much of your first job. That was kind of your foot in the door to action sports. The What did you call the Texas net drop thing? The nothing but net, zero nothing, gravity. It is nothing but net. Okay. Greatest college job of all yeah. time. Working at the bungee jump park. So I feel like I remember you talking a lot about how this was almost a hands-on crash course in human psychology for your victims or your customers, whatever you call <laughs> Especially them. Especially <laughs> working the bungee tower. Because you basically had to talk people into jumping off a tower, which is something that most humans are genetically programmed not to do. I, uh, yeah, you wouldn't last very long in the gene pool. Um, if you had, if you were wired the other way, that's for sure. Uh, so another weird side note about the, uh, about illusions, the book I'm not talking about, uh, is that director Zack Snyder cited the book illusions as a major influence for his 2011 film sucker punch and even his 2021 film army of the dead, which we've talked about on the show. Interesting. So I read that an, an adaptation of Illusions was serialized in the comic strip uh, Bestsellers Showcase. So I was thinking maybe it was the Illusions comic strip that influenced Zack Snyder. Because none of that really made sense to me. But I looked into it further and I found some really interesting stuff. So Zack Snyder and his wife read scripts out loud to each other. And according to Zack Snyder's wife... Uh, that whole thing started when he'd read Jonathan Livingston's Seagull to her, which is one of Zack Snyder's favorite books. Uh, but his, uh, that I think um, his actual, like, number one favorite book is Illusions, The Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah. So, like, two of Richard Bach's books are, like, super high on Zack Snyder's lists. Uh, they're uh, considered, you know, major influences for some of his films. So I'm not sure what the lesson is here. I don't know if uh, Jesse Eisenberg's really long, drawn-out monologue in Batman vs. Superman is inspired <laughs> in part by Jonathan Livingston Seagull, but um, just a strange little fact I learned I wanted to point out. So the, the book well, that someone I... Uh -huh. who has, uh someone who has seen Zack Snyder's movies and read these books, like, can you see any influence from these books in his, like, Basically, like living comic book art style, like the way I, the way he puts his movies together. Not really. I mean, that's why I'm confused. But granted, I ha I haven't read Illusions. When I was reading about the synopsis of Illusions, um, it, I, I I was remembering parts of the story, but I haven't read it in probably 15 years or 20 years. I mean, it's been a long time since I read that book. So maybe if I read it now, I, but it's like, how, how does that influence sucker punch and army of the dead? Um, uh, it sounds up my alley though. I mean, this is, yeah, for sure. Really speaking my language for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I think that there's some really like uh, broad topics that are, that are discussed with all of Richard Bach's work. Um, and Zack Snyder maybe is tapping into that, like bigger picture sort of thing. But I don't know, it's just something kind of interesting because I know you're a Snyder fan, as am I. Um, but, you know, another one of his favorite books was Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And so I'm going to get into the main topic of conversation. So JLS, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, it's, it's considered a fable in novella form. It was originally written as a series of short stories that were published in Flying Magazine in the late 1960s. 
Uh, it was then first published in book form in 1970, and then by the end of 1972, there's over a million copies in print. So the, the quick synopsis of the story, it's about a seagull who is learning about life as a consequence of his obsession and his passion for flight. And he's pushing himself to the limits of what's physically possible. And if the first few pages doesn't grip you, Josh, or remind you of you, then I guess you're just not reading the, the right book. Because <laughs> uh, what are the, I mean, what are the- first few pages don't grip you. Give it 122 <laughs> more. Uh, one of the parallels between uh, Jonathan the Gaul and Joshathan the contentologist, uh, one of the many parallels, is, is picking action sports over food. So in the book, oh, yeah. Jonathan is bored with the daily squabbles over food. Uh, they actually have kind of a nickname for his flock. He calls it Breakfast Flock. It's like capital B, capital F. I think that's pretty funny. So the flock is essentially just focused on catching fish and finding food. Um, they see flying as just a means to an end. It's nothing more. And other gulls are actually quite put off with Jonathan's obsession. A few of them are worried that he's too skinny or he's not eating enough because he's spending all his time experimenting with high-speed dives and rolls. It just doesn't really care that much about food. I mean, it, the dude just wants to fly. Now, during the heyday of our body flight days... Granted, you might still be a little bit more in your heyday. Uh, you're flying in the wind tunnel every week, but back in our collective heydays, uh, I remember you skipping meals to fly more. I mean, you had Jonathan Leving Livingston Seagull levels of like f focus on free flying. I used to do that with skydiving too, because I was like, man, if I don't eat lunch, I can get almost <laughs> yeah. the price of another skydive in. <laughs> and uh but i've I've definitely found the older I've got, man, I cannot get away with that anymore. I have to be like fully fueled well but, back then your fuel i mean you you might eat like a couple of starbursts or drink a red bowl or two if it was it. if it was handed to you or it was already unwrapped and maybe nearby, but you'd only <laughs> consume it as sugary fuel for you to perform your next stunt ooh <laughs> air tricks uh you know that you know thinking about a seagull skipping food so he can experiment with flying and then the, the breakfast flock being just totally bored with it. I mean, that I'm, I can totally see where this book is going because that uh, seems like a, it seems like an analogy for like we were talking about earlier, like people going through just the mundanity of life and not marveling at the wonder of being a human because when you really stop and think about it, you look at just basically anything else on this planet except for maybe some ocean creatures it's just it's incredible like what even the dumbest person the amount of processing power they have over almost everything else on the planet you know like humans are essentially if you leave a, a naked human alone in the woods there's a pretty good chance they're going to die but like humans are so ingenious with tool design and manufacturing that we've basically been able to just think our way out of every inadequacy that comes along with you know our, our meat suits and when you really just stop and think about it, it's like it's almost impossible to comprehend how amazing it is just to be a human just sitting here in this chair right now such an elevated existence over almost anything else i'm i'm not sure what you're talking about i just want my next snack 
<laughs> oh, you breakfast flock flying weirdo. Um, so on that note of, of you pursuing action sports at the expense of food, I'll never forget the story about the first time that you did a standing backflip. And I'm not sure if uh, we've talked about this on the podcast, but now it seems like the perfect time. But you had no wind, no net, no real spotter. Uh, as you and Derek on a lunch break of the wind tunnel, you were walking over to Subway. And I, I'm not telling the story to you. You know what happened, obviously. I'm telling this to the listeners. Um, but I, Oh, I got gotcha. you. I was confused. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you were like grabbing a sandwich or something. And uh, you were probably going to get some white chocolate macadamia nut cookies. I uh, had them in the bag, buddy. <laughs> oh, you did? This was on the way back from Subway. All right. Well, I remember uh, hearing that you told Derek just out of the blue that like you could do a backflip. No gymnastics training, no safety precautions, no coaching. You just stood on a rock and hucked a backflip. And I think you really impressed Derek that day. And Derek, unlike me, he is not an easy guy to impress. (laughs) He's hiked virtually every hill in Idaho bigger than a small mound. And that was just to like stretch his legs and warm him up in the morning. So that's just one of the many reasons why Jonathan in this book reminds me of you, Joshathan. Even on your way to really grab a bite. Here, Brett. <laughs> well, I mean, you're always focused on action sports. You're absolutely obsessed with pushing your limits and and testing what's possible. You know, funny thing about that story was, uh, so I had a, I had a uh, trampoline growing up, so I knew how to do a backflip, but I had never done one like without a pad or trampoline, you know, basically without a trampoline. I'd never done one. So I was up on a ledge and I, I'd been thinking about it for a while and I told Derek, Hey, I think I can do a backflip off this spot. Me, and he was like, mm, "That's not something I'm I'm going to be able to do." <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. well, I'm going to try this anyways. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I have some bad news for you, Josh, uh, because Jonathan's passion for flight has unfortunate consequences for him. His as un- it often does for humans as, as well. it of- as it often does. His unwillingness to conform to the flock eventually results in his expulsion. As an outcast, he continues his singularly focused experimentation with bird body flight and perfects an orientation that you know quite well, head down. Now, I don't have any I don't have any word on if he ever reached the true pinnacle of flying side flying. And that is an incredibly specific industry joke that most people will not understand. But then again, (laughs) I'm counting on our listeners who are mostly seasoned skydivers, wind tunnel flyers and even a lot of iFly instructors so, side fly. Uh, the, the book is broken into four parts. Part one is really Jonathan Livingston Seagull being frustrated with the petty materialism, uh, the oppressive conformity, and overall limitation of seagull life. He obsesses over flight. He basically perfects aerobatic flying. He reaches the limits of what is possible uh, for a gull, but then he gets exiled. Speed limit, 120 miles an hour. I'm we're going to talk about that. Um, so part two, he transcends into this gull society made up of gulls that like him share his passion for flight. And this only happens after he basically has reached his own personal pinnacle. And there's almost like a sort of religious or like sacred style of this chapter. I first took it rereading this um, prior to the show. Like I took it that, JLS had died and gone to heaven. 
And I think that this is a little bit inaccurate. I mean, it's it's just such a common Western idea, whether you're actually religious or not. It's an easy metaphor or uh, concept to just link to this section. But one thing about this part that I, I think is so great is that s- several of the Gauls are quite different, but they all share this immense passion for flight. And so this common interest really binds them together, despite how varied they are. And there's also... Um, this mention of a godlike Gaul deity when one Sky of the- God. <laughs> well, yeah, I, sure. Okay. <laughs> so one of the teacher birds preaches that a seagull is really like an unlimited idea of freedom. It's an image of the great Gaul. And Jonathan Livingston Seagull realizes that you have to be true to yourself. Um, a well-known quote from the book that I love is as follows. Uh, I'm hoping you can put some like gentle ocean wave sounds with the gulls, like what I had playing earlier. You could... <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you have the freedom to be yourself, your true self here and now, and nothing can stand in your way. I like that quote. And it it hit me kind of hard. And I'm going to tell you why. That's the mindset of flying. It's awesome. And, Especially yeah. skydiving. It's just like, like such a free and pure moment where really nothing else matters, you know, when you're, when you're skydiving. Yeah. Um, it's like a pure expression of, of you as a human. Sure. Um, so that being true to yourself, like living authentically, um, have you ever heard of this Australian nurse, Bronnie Ware? No, Uh, I think I'm saying that right. So she took these like unofficial, surveys of elderly people that were that were dying um and she would record their epiphanies basically like some of their some of their last thoughts in the last weeks of their life uh she was a palliative care nurse so this is in the last 12 weeks of their lives she recorded their thoughts and opinions and she published this in a blog called inspiration and chai And this got so much attention that she eventually published her observations in a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to, um, definitely, for sure. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the article. I have not read the book, but this article and this person has been on my radar for for a while. Uh, So where the the nurse wrote about the phenomenal clarity and the, the visions that people the vision that people gain at the end of their lives. When she asked her patients about things that they regret or that they would do differently, she said that these common themes surfaced again and again. And I've read this, uh, I've read about her a lot over the years and and I just find it really fascinating. So one of the, um, one of the most common regrets, like the number one most common regret is people expressing that they wish that they had the courage to live a life true to themselves not the life others expected of them. So this book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Bach, I think it's directly tapping into that wisdom and is trying to share that idea with his readers, um, like a lot of other ideas that are in the book. But this is like, I think this is a really big core concept. Oh, he was Richard Bach a pilot or an extreme sportsman in any he way? He was a I mean- pilot. He was it's, a pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this seems, uh, it, it's, first of all, I'm definitely reading this. This sounds amazing. And uh, it just seems 
like the, the the thoughts and concepts he's putting in there are just so congruent with things that I think a lot of people go through when they first discover some sort of flying activity, skydiving. I mean, a lot of these same thoughts and ideas, you know, over the years, like the way skydiving has evolved. And I'm sure like as a pilot, a lot of these same ideas about, you know, being obsessed with the freedom and then that I guess the obsession is a big part of it because, you know, humans are, I've always felt meant to fly. It's just, it's like part of the soul code of everyone, almost anyone I've ever spoken to, even if they've never flown, they've never skydived, they don't pilot airplanes. Everybody has had flying dreams. It's just, it's so common. It just seems like it's, it's just written into our DNA. And uh, I think anyone who's ever embarked on some sort of aviation path can relate with a lot of these concepts. Uh, Definitely. I couldn't agree more. And this is why this is like a really special book um, to bring to the show, especially just right now. I feel like just in this time in my life, it was an appropriate, um, an appropriate moment. So um, on the author being a pilot, uh, if if you get the book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, the complete edition you get a special fourth part of the book. Now, originally, this section was a non-published chapter that was inspired by a near-death experience which occurred due to a nearly fatal plane crash that the author, Richard Bach, experienced in August of 2012. I was just going to ask about this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when it, I want to hear about how he juxtaposes the majesty of flight with just the inherent tragedy that is just like, well, I'm definitely Always holding hands with it. Yeah, I'm definitely I don't want to spoil anything. Um, I'm just going to tell you that in, in 2013, this section was edited and polished and it was added to a new version of Jonathan Livingston Seagull. So um, I don't think this section was in the original paperback version that I read when I was first introduced to this book as a kid. Um, but I to reread this, I was I was rereading this for this episode and I, I bought the new complete edition on my books app on my phone so that I could uh, read it while I was in the cockpit. And the price of entry for this spiritual epic uh, filled with aerodynamic life wisdom was $1.99. Worth <laughs> I, think it. It, I think it was $2.12 with tax. I think the audiobook is like six bucks, but I, I'd say you're not going to break the bank with this one. But um, so I'm not going to talk about that particular story, but Richard Bach, um, hit his love of flying. It definitely inspired him to use these like semi autobiographical stories, either actual or fictionalized events from his life to illustrate his philosophy, whether it's in illusions or in Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And his basic belief is that our apparent physical limits and mortality are merely an appearance. Um, He started flying when he was 17 years old. He served in the United States Navy Reserve, the New Jersey Air National Guard's 108th Fighter Wing, the Air Force uh, 101st Fighter Squadron as a Republic F-84F Thunderstreak fighter pilot, which I don't really know my military aircraft all that well. I had to look that one up. Um, It's badass looking. I mean, I would fly that thing. It looks sweet. So in addition to his military career, 
He worked a variety of jobs, including as a technical writer for Douglas Aircraft, a contributing editor for Flying Magazine. He even served uh, in the Air Force Reserves. Uh, he was deployed in France in 1960, and he later became a barnstormer. So, I mean, he really has a fascinating and varied background as, a, as an aviator. What's that? It would crash into barns. Isn't that what barnstorming was? Crashing biplanes into barns? I know uh, like back in the 30s or something, <laughs> that's what they used to do. Well, so, so barnstorming is sort of like performing stunts for a crowd. Um, yeah. It typically was in a biplane. I don't, I don't think, you know, I, I didn't see anything about flying into barns. I think you could fly like through open of barn of that. doors. Yeah, I mean, it's just all kind, all kinds of wild stunts. Like I think when you see like the old timey pictures of people playing like ping pong or you got the lady that's like, you know, in a corset that's like strapped to the like top of a biplane. Like that's all barnstorming. They fly low. Majesty of flight went enough for you guys. Right. (laughs) Church it up with some ping pong. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So Jonathan Livingston Stegall, it it wasn't Richard Bach's first book. It was his second. And this, this book really conforms to that classic, like against all odds success story in literature where his manuscript was just turned down over and over again before it was published in a magazine and then, you know, discovered by somebody, picked up by a publisher, uh, at, they threw in a couple of photographs of seagulls in flight by photographer Russell Munson. And the next thing you know, this book is like number one bestseller, sold a million copies in 72 uh, which, you know, being a book with fewer than 10,000 words is even more of a unique success. I mean, it's not a long read. It's a quick read. It's a short book. Sounds like a pamphlet. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. But I, I, I'm not going to spoil anything, but that, uh, that incident in 2012. So he was on approach to land at Friday Harbor, Washington. And his aircraft clipped some power lines and uh, crashed upside down in a field. And he did survive. Yes. He was badly injured, um, but definitely get the complete edition of Jonathan Livingston Seagull so that you can. I just bought it. <laughs> Fastest turnaround ever, Brett. <laughs> Your sales pitch has worked. <laughs> well, perfect. I love it. Um, I don't have much else to talk about since you already bought it. But I, I, there's a few more things I want to mention uh, that I think are worth mentioning. So the novella was also turned into a movie in 1973. Uh, this was long before CG. So in order to make seagulls act on cue and perform aerobatics, one of the filmmakers built uh, RC gliders that looked like seagulls oh. from a few feet away. So um, I'm not sure how much of the $1.5 million budget went into the radio-controlled artificial birds. But I imagine quite a bit, because that sounds pretty cutting edge for 1973. See, that kind of trick would work on a breakfast flock, but I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. you getting a Jonathan Livingston seagull to follow you, unless it was a fully aero, aerobatic glider and then or, or a RC plane. Then you could probably get him on board. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Richard Bach originally wrote the screenplay for this movie, but uh, he later sued Paramount Pictures, because the film that was released had several discrepancies between uh, the book oh, no. and the film. And there, he had a I contract. I imagine he did not want his, he did not want his vision bastardized in any not way. Not at all. It seems like a very specific message. It, for sure. For sure. And he, it was in a contract that stated no changes could be made to the film's adaptation without his consent. 
Um, so he, I think he won that lawsuit. I remember reading a quote from his lawyer that was like, yeah, this guy is pretty brave to go up against Paramount Pictures and just like, you know, he didn't care about the money. He just cared about how the book was adapted. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. You know, that takes some serious balls. Um, I never saw the movie, but I can tell you that it got a 60% audience score and an 8% on the tomato, t- uh, tomato oh. meter. So... Doesn't sound great. That's Doesn't a, sound like those Paramount changes went over very well. I guess the the RC birds didn't win the uh, critics <laughs> over. <laughs> um, now, Josh, forget about the movie. Is the book universally loved? I'm going to be honest with you. No, it's not. Uh, although some of the praise that I mentioned earlier, including uh, Tom Butler Bowden. Now, he's the one that puts Jonathan Livingston Seagull on his list as one of 50 timeless spiritual classics saying it is easy now 35 years on to overlook the originality of the book's concept and though some find it rather naive in fact it expresses timeless ideas about human potential not so enthusiastic was film critic roger ebert Uh who wrote that the book was so banal that it had had to be sold to adults kids would have seen right through it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh burn i hope he's not making some sort of commentary on people that love flying's delusional outlook on life yeah. uh you know keep in mind ebert was a movie guy and not a book guy so uh, he must have been really mad to step into the realm of dissing books instead of reviewing movies uh, definitely definitely i think i if i had to guess i imagine his he's like uh, shoehorned this in his critique for the movie because he like panned the movie as well. Obviously, well, it um, sounds like it sucks. So yeah, he the, might have been right on that front. He is right about the 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 movie, but he's wrong about the book for sure. Um, but, and you know something about banal, like that is something about that word. That's like a that's like somebody saying that they're not mad, but they're disappointed. You know, it like cuts even deeper. <laughs> yeah, it's like the. The last thing you want your dad to feel about you. Yeah. Banality. <laughs> yeah. So before I wrap up, I did want to single out a few aerodynamic principles that weren't always specifically named, but they were clearly mentioned. Uh, so right off the bat, Jonathan Livingston Seagull practices slow flight. I mean, this is a necessary part of the private pilot license curriculum, uh, which is you know, it's a demonstration in how airspeed, drag, lift, angle of attack, all this stuff is related. And also how it actually feels to be operating an aircraft with that characteristically sluggish uh, controls and uh, you're getting closer and closer to the stall speed. And also stalling. I mean, our favorite seagull is actually practicing stalling his airfoil, his wings, in order to test the limits of his vehicle. In this case, is you got to know what the lower limit is. Yeah, it's a right. really important thing for flying a parachute too. Like you, you have to know where that is so you don't accidentally do that when you're too low to the ground. Absolutely, and this, I mean, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, he's experimenting with this just like a skydiver practicing, or just like a pilot would, um, you know, experiment with his aircraft. It, you know, there's just like a skydiver on an empty stomach. On an empty stomach. Yeah. I haven't heard that. Just oh, because you don't eat. Right, all right, all right. Sports time. Yeah, I, got it. Got it. I'll um, cut that out. So, uh, so ground effect 
um, is also mentioned in, in Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, he so in the book, he talks about flying at altitudes at less than half his wingspan. He's like, I, I don't know why, but uh, you know, I can stay in the air longer with less effort when I'm right over the water. Uh, so ground effect is something I enter into on every single landing. It's especially noticeable in the 737-800, which I just flew for the last couple of days. Uh, with the power pulled to idle at like say 20 feet, 30 feet, if I was landing in the 300 or the 400, the plane will very quickly dissipate energy and you will very easily get a firm landing. Um, with the 800, they call the dash eight, with any extra energy or airspeed in the 800, even with the power pulled smoothly to idle at those same altitudes, I mean, the, the plane could have the tendency to float because of ground effect. And this is due to that reduction of aerodynamic drag that occurs when you're close to the ground. And, and it also happens on takeoff. I mean, it can actually be a big problem for pilots that don't have a lot of experience because you are, or even experienced pilots too. Uh, you have reduced drag at or below approximately half the length of the aircraft's wingspan. And that equates to more lift component with the same angle of attack. So why do you get less drag close to the ground? Like I familiar with the concept of ground effect, but I don't understand. Yeah, no, it's, it's the physics of what's happening. Like why did, why do you, does that have something to do with density altitude? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. So, um, it would be, I'm going to use my hands to try to explain this concept. Everyone listening. <laughs> it. Um, but essentially when you have an airfoil, you're getting a, a low pressure over the wing. You're getting a high pressure underneath the wing, um, just because of the, uh, air molecules moving faster and it creates a lower pressure. So what I happens guess. Is it the high pressure bouncing off the ground, basically, and creating like Not higher pressure pocket? You're, you're getting closer. They do call it the cushion effect, but what it what it is really? So here's my airfoil. I'm gonna turn it this way. Okay. So here here's the wing. Here you're looking at the front, the leading edge of the wing. Mm -hmm. This high pressure wants to go to a low pressure. Uh, there's nowhere really for it to go except around the wing. So this high pressure is actually spiraling like a vortice. Around From the wing, underneath to the top, to the, of the top, wing. it pushes down on that um, low pressure, and it creates a downward vector, and that downward vector is drag. Now, Whoa. when you so get close to the ground, it's like you a are suction into that high pressure. A hundred percent. When you see wing tips on airplanes, that's exactly what they're trying to prevent. When you put a wing tip like this on the end, like a vertical. Mm -hmm. You know, it looks like a vertical stabilizer, basically. But that is to prevent that same airflow around the tip of the wing. Um, and it makes it's it more like efficient. It's like a spoiler. That, that thing is like a spoiler, kind of. Well, a spoiler A spoiler is something... Well, okay. I, yeah, a spoiler does disrupt the airflow, but it, it's to kill lift. This is to prevent that... Uh, it's not really to prevent lift. It's to prevent induced drag. Yeah. From from that airflow. But the That's ground will do the same thing. So you get within, you know, they say approximately half of a wingspan within the ground. And now you're cutting out that uh, vortice, basically. And like you, I mean, you can feel it. You feel you it in a small a plane. You things with that, I imagine. You feel it. I mean, you, you know, those, there's like, if you had a low powered airplane, like you could fly it, you could, you know, take it uh, low on the ground and then you'd, It'd be a lot more efficient. Uh, you wouldn't need as much power, but you'd Snow also speeder. be... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. 
Um, and you know, this, I mean, it can be a problem on takeoff because if you have, if you take off at a low airspeed, you're at a certain angle of attack and you can fly in ground effect. But if you lift out of ground effect before the air, it, you have enough airspeed or you are still at this like critical angle of attack, you could actually stall the plane just by exiting ground effect and then, you know, basically nosedive right back into the ground and hit the nose wheel and cause all kinds of problems for you. So, um, you know, but fascinating. for R- Jonathan Livingston Seagull to, to uh, tackle these like aerodynamic subjects and just sort of mention them like casually in passing is really cool for a pilot. Like, I think it's really interesting. Um, and of course, there's the aerodynamic uh, principle that you're extremely familiar with, terminal velocity. And I, I want to hear Speed you. Minute 120. <laughs> I want to hear you give a public service announcement for all the listeners out there that were thinking about skydiving or went skydiving once and thought it'd be really cool to get one of those t-shirts with that speed limit. Josh, tell us more. Well, (laughs) if you got to buy a skydiving t-shirt, you should buy the one that says most sports require one ball. Mine takes both skydive. Well, that's, that's without a doubt. (laughs) Yeah. But um, that's my public service announcement. But can you tell us more about the, the supposed speed limit of skydiving? Oh Yeah. When a t-shirt says speed limit 120, <laughs> that's like saying speed limit on the highway, zero. Because that's that is your starting point. Unless you're some kind of freak of nature, the extremely long arms and the ability to de-arch like a madman, you're not gonna be able to fall much slower than that. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. So terminal velocity, um, you know, this is this it depends on different things, right? So you have an adult falling through the air on their belly. They accelerate, accelerate, accelerate to the ground uh, due to gravity until a certain point where drag caused by the air molecules against your body, it is, it's enough drag that you stop accelerating. Now you're at terminal velocity. It starts at about 120, so that's a minimum. Um, now, if you point your head straight down to the earth, you don't have a lot of drag. You have the same amount of weight. Now you can go a lot faster. So Jonathan Livingston Seagull, in in the book, he became the fastest seagull in the world by diving towards the ground, hitting 214 miles an hour. Peregrine dive. So I wanted to find out, would it actually be possible for a seagull to have a terminal velocity of 214 miles an hour? Because, like, I, I think maybe I've hit those speeds on my head. When I used to, like, keep track of my speeds with my, um, audible altimeter, like, do you know what speeds you've ever hit? 200, 190? I've definitely gone over 200, but, uh-huh. uh, you know, the way that when they do like a speed competition, you know, to, I've seen it sometimes at nationals where they, it's just, you're just trying to hit the highest top speed. And what people do is like get out and fly at an angle and build up horizontal speed and then peel it off into a dive. So you're not just dealing with terminal velocity of your, you know, your drag and your weight and your body position, you're actually building up speed ahead of time and then using it to like slingshot your way around the corner into a vertical dive. Oh, that's people interesting. People hit much higher fall rate speeds doing that than you would if you just got out and pointed straight at the ground and just didn't do anything. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. That's kind of like the reverse of how I used to like to break off from group dives, just peeling out on my belly. Vertical separation. <laughs> just Vertical. pull underneath everyone. Yeah, just just dive straight down. Till everybody was already broken off. I'm way too low to just peel out of my belly and pitch. It was so fun. <sighs> Ignorance was bliss The ultimate back then. safety break off. 
pretty sure I chastised you about that several times. Oh my god. I'm glad I started listening to you at some point when I was like, got back into skydiving 10 years later. I was like, wow, I was a real idiot back then. It's never too late, as long yeah. as you're still alive. That's right. <laughs> um, so, to figure out the, the possible Seagull terminal velocity speed, the best way I could think of uh, to figure this out, uh, if this was accurate, if this could actually happen, was just look up the terminal velocity of another type of bird. And the one that you said, uh, the Peregrine Falcon, I mean, they're definitely known as the fastest diving bird. And in fact, they're actually the world's fastest animal. The, they, they estimated these birds would reach terminal velocity of about 185. But in 2005, a Peregrine Falcon named Frightful set the official Guinness World Record when it was clocked doing 242 miles per hour from nearly... Oh, God damn, that's amazing. 242. And, a I mean, falcon. how much does a peregrine falcon weigh? It can't uh, be a more couple like pounds. pounds or yeah, something. It's, it's not... It doesn't weigh, you know, what we weigh, 190 pounds with our gear on. Like, it's crazy. And it, this is from three miles up. Uh, so to record this, they actually did use a computer chip taken from... A skydiver's pro track altimeter, and they and to help stuffed up the bird's butt. <laughs> I, I didn't see that part. They must have left that out in their scientific paper. You didn't watch the behind the scenes. <laughs> oh, that poor, poor bird. So I, I would definitely say that this is plausible for a gull like Jonathan Livingston Seagull to hit 200 plus. So Josh, this book has it all. It's got flying things. It's got diving things it's got bird things it's short it's easy to digest it has fun pictures of seagulls even the uh, electronic uh, apple book version there's something sweet about it too and, and most importantly it will reach right through the brittle ice cold armor that we all wear defensively around our aching hearts and it will touch those hearts and make us feel all warm inside just like we ate a Spicy jalapeno pepper, but without the stinging on our lips. Gives and you I a little bit of touch-induced heart murmur <laughs> when it first makes contact. Oh, am I dying? Oh, no, it's just Jonathan Livingston Seagull touching my heart. And Josh, I think you in particular would relate to the struggles and the triumphs of our heroic gall. In fact... The more I think about it, Josh, you might actually be humanity's own Joshathan Evanston Air Guy. <laughs> Air Guy. Oh, Brett. So one last You're thing. Giving me way too much credit. <laughs> one last thing before I sign off. Um, the other day, this is really weird. I do, I do you ever get on my Instagram and watch watch my Instagram stories by chance? I know you're not much of an Instagram guy. I've seen a few of your stories. Okay. I, I haven't been really posting a lot lately, but um, I'm going to find the picture on my phone. We could maybe even post this on social media. I don't know. I'll tell you about it. It's, share it. It's kind of interesting. So um, so the other day, I mean, this was, I, honestly, I think it was two days ago. I flew a trip taking a university sports team into a small airport I'd never been to before, which is saying a lot. I've flown to a lot of places in the U.S., but this was in... Uh, Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, we got in late at night, you know, no lights except for the runway lights leading to the taxiway lights and leading to the marshallers with their lighted wands who parked us. 
Uh, but the next day, taking the airplane out of Waterloo, what did I see painted on the building in front of me? Uh, well, is that Richard Bach's seagull from the book? But how do I know it wasn't just any seagull? So my airplane was parked at Livingston Aviation. Oh, man. And so here's a picture. I'm just going to hold it up to the screen because I didn't plan this ahead. That's a bird, all right. <laughs> is that the silhouette from the cover? It's 100%. Uh, you know, this is Jonathan Livingston Seagull inspired 100%. That and is not surprising, honestly. I imagine this book has probably had a huge impact on the aviation community. But here's the thing. I have never been to an FBO called Livingston Aviation. I've never... I. You know, I know that what's the term for like when you hear about something, you start seeing it. There's like a. Oh, the. Uh, uh, Ma- Ma- Maiden. Ba- Biden Mainhoff. That's it. Is it? Biden. The Biden Meinhof Is phenomenon. It? I think that's it. Yeah, we okay. start seeing it everywhere. Yep. Biden Meinhof. Okay. So, you know, I am. I like that's that concept is on my radar, but. In my humble and and more and more spiritually inclined opinion, as I um, get older and wiser and have more life experiences and do more growing, and uh, you know, I, in my opinion, the universe loves signs. It loves messages, and you know, it loves to like make me smile and make me laugh, and and it did that. So, check out Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and hopefully, you'll find your own signs. Maybe even some blue skies and some happy landings as well. Skydive big time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brett, I think uh, I already kind of spoiled this when I bought the book in the middle of the show, but this might be the fastest turnaround <laughs> I've ever been sold on a piece of content. I mean, this is just hearing you describe it makes me feel like it's like almost criminal that I haven't read this already. This sounds at the very least, just like good inspiration for, you know, the, a, a way to think about flying. But it sounds like there's also some life, some life lessons in there. So I'm really excited to dig in. That sounds really good and exactly up my alley. Just like that computer chip up that uh, Peregrine Falcon's alley. That's right. <laughs> Not all things that go up your alley are bad. So... <laughs> Thanks for this awesome episode. Thanks for coming back to the show, man. I'm so excited to be doing the show with you again. And uh, thank you to the listeners out there for uh, sticking with us over the break. We will be back on a regular schedule now. So um, yeah, if you guys are interested, check out our social media, Facebook and Instagram at the content clearinghouse at not gmail.com. That's the <laughs> that's the email. <laughs> uh, the Content Clearinghouse on Instagram and Facebook and also contentclearinghouse at gmail.com if you want to email us some of your messages, ideas, content recommendations, things like that. So thanks, everyone. And we will be back here next week with more amazing content jammed into your ear holes. <laughs>